Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining our Wednesday devotional. My name is Louie, and I am your Trinity's worship and media arts pastor. Each episode will have gospel-centered, meaningful discussions between Pastor Shamar and me. Join us every Wednesday for the podcast, and if you like what you see and hear, consider joining us on Sunday morning for worship. Thank you. Hey, Shamar. <laughs> hey, Louie, how's it going? Uh, it's so good to be back Uh having this discussion and continuing our conversation. Um, Last time we kind of stopped uh, after speaking for about an hour on Romans chapter three and Mm -hmm. the book of Psalms. We were looking at some of the comparisons between how Paul is using the book of Psalms and, and using different passages from the Psalms in uh, his letters uh, but also, I think we kind of stopped because Paul was kind of beginning a new section where at the end of chapter three, he talks about what becomes of our boasting. And, you know, and then he goes into chapter four. And I think there are some more things, more interesting things that we can explore there. So um, let me ask you uh, real quick. So as a as a. As a Christian, um, can you briefly describe what it means uh, in terms of like what our boasting? Because a lot of times biblical passages talk seem to talk about boasting in yeah. Christ, but I think a lot of times it is it can be confusing, or we can confuse the word boasting with being prideful. And I don't yeah. know if there's a difference, biblically speaking, and if you can kind of start with uh, start today's discussion with that. So, uh, exceptional question. Uh, the word boasting in the context that Paul uses it is a playoff of the idea of works. And so, specifically what he's addressing is you being able to take, well, the question of who takes credit for what has been done. Right. And so. I will. Jump in. We start at the top of chapter four. Right. Because this is where he introduces this idea of boasting. Mm-hmm. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So that part right there, if if it was works, if Abraham can take credit for physically doing something, then right, he, he can brag. He can say, I I've got righteousness. What he can't do though, right, looking back at chapter three is he can't really still compare his righteousness to God. So even his best efforts, if they get him in, will still pale in terms of the righteousness of God. But I think the point that he is ultimately making is he doesn't have anything to brag about. That what Moses did, what got him credit Right. What, what got him to the point of a covenant 
was not because he did any works. It was so he has nothing to boast about. The only one who can who can brag, right? The only one who can take credit, so to speak, is God. And he's not just doing, he's not just creating theology out of thin air. So he's specifically making reference to some things that happen, book of Genesis, starting at chapter 15. So if you want to, if you want to talk back to what I just said, you can do that. And then we can go to Genesis. I'll pause here for a second. Um, so I think that's a really interesting idea, partially because um, I often think that um, because in, in, in chapter three, Paul kind of ends with this idea that is the God of God of uh, is the God, the God of Jews only, or is he not the God of Gentiles also? So he kind of starts talking about this um, inclusive language where God is not just for specific group of people, but God is out to get everyone. Right. So like, in, in the most positive sense possible, but God is trying to get everyone in the, in the idea and in the, in the salvation itself. But what's, I think interesting is that, and one of the reasons why I wanted to clarify that with you today during the discussion was because I think oftentimes, um, and again, I don't know how other people may have felt about this, but I do think even Protestants, commit that sin where God is only our God, right? They they become that, they start using that possessive pronouns when they are trying to describe God's goodness. And, and, and you know, it can be somewhat, I, I can see that becoming a root of, of, of great pride, but at the same time, a great sin of, of being somewhat arrogant and and trying to compare uh not compare but like bring that comparative term so that you know it just makes it sound like i've done my work to get into god's kingdom but you haven't right so uh, that's one of the reasons why i wanted to ask you and how how does that sort of relay back to genesis so he, he, you've really set me up perfectly. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, because we didn't practice this, but it's a perfect setup. It is the phrase that Paul uses is Jewish theology in its whole. So he borrows from the book of Exodus. What he says is God is one. Now, when Christians hear God is one, they typically are thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, all one divinity. But it is important to recognize that Paul's writings predate the doctrine of the Trinity. So without dismissing the validity of the, of the doctrine, what we're saying is that Paul is looking at something else. And the specific issue that he's addressing is how many gods are there? So if you're an Egyptian, you might say that the high God was Ra. If you're a Canaanite, the high God is Baal. If you are a Jew, the high God is Jehovah. But depending upon where you live, right, what your country is, what your religion is, you'll have different high gods. And so a fair question to raise is, is are there three high gods right? and, and are they distinct? Or is God one? 
And if God is one, then either he's manifesting himself in these different cultures in different ways, or he's only manifesting himself to the Jews and these other cultures and other religions are serving a different God. Right? So Paul lands squarely on God is one. So the Bible argues, right? Old Testament, the prophets say they are worshiping gods that are not gods, right? So not that God is manifesting himself to other religions in different ways, which also goes counter to the text, right? The Paul says, you know, what value is it to be Jewish? He said, well, God has given us the oracles. So we, meaning we are hearing from God, right? And there may be pockets of revelation. People may see God in certain ways, but the fullness of the revelation has come through the Jews, right? Again, the argument, the theological argument that Paul is making that is consistent with the Old Testament, right? So he's, he's preaching, as Jesus would say, from the law and the prophets, right? So, but, but theology has consequences. What that means is if God is truly one, then that means that he must be the God of everybody. So even if the Egyptians are worshiping Ra and the Canaanites are worshiping Baal, even though they are not worshiping him, he is still their God because God is one. There's only one God. Right? So the, the way that he proves that is he makes a historical case looking at the book of Genesis. And he looks at the covenant that God made with Abraham. Well, I say Abraham, but really at the time that the covenant was made, his name was Abram. Now, for Paul, this is really key because God makes this covenant with Abraham at the time in history when he has not been circumcised. That's Paul's way of saying he is outside of the covenant. Right. In other words, he's making this. God is making this covenant with Abraham right, as a Gentile. And if God is the God of Abraham and God makes the covenant with Abraham, then now, right, you who are Gentiles need to really examine this point to see if you can fit into this covenant as well. Right, so when you look at chapter 17, you see the covenant of circumcision. But predating chapter 17 and to be more specific, predating, it's only two chapters, but it's like 25 years apart. Right. 23, 25 years. So predating chapter 17 is chapter 15. And so before he makes the covenant of circumcision, he makes a different covenant with Abraham. So here's what Paul is aiming at. I'm in book of Genesis, chapter 15. And I'm going to just adjust my headphones here. He's in, I'm going to start at the top. So I'm going to start at verse one. And I'm going to do the first paragraph. So I'm going to go from verses one to six. And I may go a little bit deeper, but I don't think that I will. I'm probably going to skip down to verse 17. Because he, he first talks about Abraham and then he does the covenant. So there, right, there's a little bit of commentary, so to speak, that starts in, in verse one. So here we go. I'm in the EFV. After these things, so these things are Moses, 
offers sacrifice to God through King Melchizedek, and he pays tithes to King Melchizedek. After those things, chapter 15, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Here's the word. Fear not. Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Pivotal verse right here, what I'm about to read. And he, he, Abram, believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So Paul starts to make this case that what initiated the covenant was not anything that Abram had done. Right? When God starts the conversation, Abram hadn't done anything. And so he doesn't say, you won the battle. He doesn't even say, you paid your tithes. Right? He doesn't say, um, you know, you offered sacrifice after those things, right? When those things are not a part of the conversation anymore, God comes and just says, fear not, I'm your shield. Your reward is going to be very great. Abram is an Old Testament guy. So in America, we kind of esteem, you know, focusing on your career and not having children. And I say that, you know, with no no criticism. That's not really where I'm going. I'm saying that to talk about the cultural differences. In our day, children, no children, same thing. Right? Even the New Testament, Paul talks about some have the gift of singleness because in marriage, you have to focus on your wife and your children. So there's no shame in not having children. In Abram's day, there was shame in not having children. So it is impossible for your reward to be very great for you to say God is your shield and he's given you no offspring, right? Impossible. So before Abram is circumcised, when he hasn't done anything, when he is a Gentile, not the father of the Jewish people, so to speak, right? When he is good and old, you know, somewhere around 75 years old, and his wife has been barren their entire marriage. And they probably married when she was a teenager. So you're looking at you know, 50, 60 years of marriage. At that point, God comes to him and say, hey, 75-year-old Louis, 75-year-old Shamar, who has a wife who's been barren for 50, 55 years. Oh, go buy some booties. Right? It's time to go to the diaper store. Oh, man. Right. You're not going to be getting any sleep for the next, you know, for, for about a year. You better, better make sure that you 
go go sign up to enroll in the good school. <laughs> God. First of all, stop teasing me. <laughs> right? Second of all, I hear you talking all this in my neighbor, they would say all this big talk. <laughs> the only problem is I don't have any kids. My wife isn't pregnant. She's cute, but she's not pregnant. So I hear you, you know, thank you, but you know, what are you talking about? Right? That would have been a reasonable response. Abram's response was, thank you, Lord. Paul says, well, God says, you believe God. God counted it to him as righteousness. All he did was believe. So now you jump down to verse 17. Because he believed, God sealed his belief in a covenant. Right? So here's verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is an allusion to animal sacrifices that Abram made a few verses up that we didn't read. But... Right now he's offered some sacrifice. So he's done, you know, now he's done the usual things. But notice all that was after it had been counted to him as righteousness. Right. So now he's offering sacrifices. Now he's giving his tithes and paying his offering. You know, he's doing all that. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Right. So Moses, Abram, gets a covenant. Moses isn't even a thought at this point. Abram gets a covenant as a Gentile for having done nothing but being a believer. And that is Paul's pivot point when he writes, right? So he says, going back, verse, I'm, I'm back in Romans chapter four. What then shall we say was gained by Abram, my forefather, according to the flesh, right? For if Abram was justified by works, he had something to boast about just not before God. For what does the scripture say, right? So now he's going, well, you know, Abram did seem like a good righteous guy. We can make that case. And you know, he's, he's faithful in his own way. So we can certainly say that, but what was it that earned him the covenant, so to speak? It wasn't works, right? For as good a guy as he was, right? But what does the scripture say? I'm in the middle of verse three, Abraham, Believe God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here, Paul brings us back to the song. So he's now quoting King David. 
This is Psalm chapter 32, and it's verse one and two. So I'm going to read it here first. I'm going to read verses seven and eight, and then we'll, I'm going to pause and I'm going to let you ask me some questions while I run over to Psalm chapter 32. And we're going to read what David wrote and see if there's any difference in what David wrote versus how Paul interprets what he wrote. But here's Paul. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord would not count his sin. So what do you think about that? So, you know, I think what's also interesting about how you're tying how Abraham back in Genesis, of course, Abram being a Gentile, not necessarily a Jew, he was given the covenant because he was, he, he, because of his faith, right? And what's interesting is how Paul is, we're about to look at Psalm and how the Psalm is quoting this, but what's interesting is that logically speaking, if, if there are those whose lawless deeds, whose sins are forgiven and whose sins are covered, that means you have to believe in Jesus Christ. Right. So I feel like we already kind of know where Paul is going to go, but he's probably making his case firmer by bringing in the Old Testament and how that was originally God's plan. And so I guess in that sense, um, I think what this also brings up is that a lot of people have the sense that, you know, people who started believing later in life compared to other people right i i that's one example that i can think of that might be that might be related to what the text is talking about how the jews they might be a little more upset because they're like i was born believing and in 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 their minds of course because they were following the tradition of jewish traditions and they were praying the way they were taught they were they were believing God as they were told, and they, you know, they did all of this. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, the people who were not believing in God, much less people who didn't believe in Jesus Christ, are invited, right? So, like, I think people have this. I and and again, I don't I don't want to blame this on anyone, but I think it's in our nature where we go, I've earned it. Right. I, I, I've, I've paid my dues. I've earned my right to be blessed because I've been believing for however many years. Right. Versus fresh believers who might not have a deep understanding of doctrines or theology or even covenant speaking of the Jewish tradition. But they believe. Right. Their faith is so much more firmly grounded in Christ and other people. So how, how is, I guess in that sense, how does Paul address that issue of, again, going back to that idea of people feeling like they are left out one way or another, because once again, this kind of brings up the question of, well, at what point do we actually say, you know, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and blessed is the man who against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
when does that happen, right? Because people are so logistically wired, they want to know all of these different questions. And I kind of want to hear from you how Paul is using the context of the Psalm 32 that we're about to read to bring that up. So, so it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, Paul, I think, is going to play off of some teachings of Jesus. So we're going to read the psalm. Then if, if we have time, we'll maybe go to what Jesus really says about this. And let me say, if you are one of those people, in some ways, it's going to be a little disconcerting. Because I, I think that's a natural feeling. I, I've earned this. What do, you, what do you mean? Right? But listen to David. Psalm 32, start at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For, I'm in verse three now, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, my hand, your, excuse me, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the sun. Stila. And I'm going to stop there because it's a, right, there's a Stila, which is suggestive of a rest, right? So Paul is kind of, David is kind of stinging a verse and then he takes a break here. What he seems to indicate, though, is I am not a perfect person, right? I'm not a perfect man. And, and you can read the story of David and know that that's true. But I think right, David is all of us. And in some ways, we are all not perfect, even at our best. So right, David is an imperfect man. But he says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity right, or a different way of saying his sins. But then he adds this in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 4, he doesn't mention that part. I think it's implied. Paul just says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. He doesn't mention the no deceit part, directly here because he addresses it in other places. So Paul is not actually against circumcision. What he's against is someone who is, he would say, physically circumcised, but not circumcised in the heart. Right? And the idea of circumcision is related to not just covenant, but refinement, that there is work that God does to you and in you when he circumcises your heart. So you can think of circumcision of the heart as an act of repentance, right? And so that's why, going back to Psalms, and I'm taking you all over the place, I know, David can say, in whose spirit there is no deceit, someone who has confessed to God. I am imperfect. My transgressions are ever before me. I've made all kinds of mistakes, and I'm sorry, right? But you're not 
holding back. You're not trying to trick God into thinking that you're better than you are. You're very honest and transparent about exactly who you are and exactly why you don't deserve him to, to use David's language, right? Forgive your transgressions, right? So that's kind of what he's aiming at. Because he says in verse three, when I kept silent, so when I wasn't confessing, right? Psalms 32, verse three, but when I, was, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, right? My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So it is like he's saying that when I wasn't confessing my sins and when I wasn't repenting before you, God, I felt this, this weight, right? My body was betraying me because I'm holding all this in and I feel the weight of your judgment on me, right? That's verse four, right? Day and night, your heavy hand is on me. It's like, I know that the horsemen are coming, right? But the ability to re confess and repent, to be circumcised, not just physically, right? David was circumcised physically, but then confessing his sins repenting for his sins and genuinely wanting to be better, that was circumcision of the heart. Right? So it is a, a twofold blessing, right? This is why you have to read the Psalm to really get the richness of it, that God blesses people. He forgives people, not because they did the right thing, but because there's no deceit in their spirit that even after they have done the wrong thing, then they go before God and they confess their sins with a deceit less heart, right? I made that word up probably, but with a deceit less heart and that heart that doesn't want to deceive God, right? Even if you've maybe been deceptive to your neighbor, right? One of the 10 commandments, right? Um, right, not to commit fraud. But even if you've committed fraud, now you look back at what you've done and you're genuinely sorry. You are open and honest with God. And for not having done anything, right? Not because I worked. Not because I was able to completely fix it because there are some things that can't be fixed. But just because he is God and He's the only one who has the ability to do it. He forgives my transgressions. And so, right here, he's equating confession and repentance to faith. Right? That's the, right, that's kind of the, that's the trifecta. Confession, repentance, faith. Those three go together. And that is how you get righteousness from God, how you get forgiveness from God, right? Not based on the works of the law, but the work of, as Paul would say, the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of the meat of the passage. I think you talking about all of these ideas where confession, faith, and of course there's a repentance from confession. I think yeah. what interesting is again and i think it's because i i've 
been kind of talking about like the old believers versus new believers and how does the salvation cultivate both souls. Yeah. It's, you know, it kind of, again, reminds me of one of the thieves who were hanging on the cross next to Jesus. Right. Um, because I think what, what a lot of times, and, and this is, I've heard this question and and logic from some of the non-believer friends that I've had uh, who are always questioning, well, it doesn't make any sense. So why would I start believing now if I can confess my faith right before my deathbed? Yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, and, you know, when I was getting, getting those questions, I was only in high school. So, you know, I didn't always know how to elaborate what that really meant <laughs> and yeah. what that actually looked like. And I think that's another kind of um, one of those aspects that can arise some confusions I can see. Yeah, I can see that being confusing. And, it, you know, I mean, if you think about it, it's a logical question. Right. What I think is underneath that question, though, is what David talks about in the song that Paul hits more indirectly, but David hits more directly, that the essence of that question is the deceitfulness of the heart. So I don't actually want to be righteous. I just don't want to go to hell. Right, right. So, so let me maximize my living in ways that I know don't please God and then really presume on the grace of God that on your deathbed you will have either the time or the wherewithal to then confess and repent, which, you know, might be true, but it might not be true. So without me sending anybody to heaven or to hell, I, I am not God, thankfully. So I don't know what will happen on any of your deathbeds, right? My greatest desire is for all of you to be in heaven with me and for all of you to come to trusting faith in Jesus Christ as soon as possible. You know, but having lived a little bit of years, let me say that it is aggressive to presume that one, you can trick God into believing that your confession is, is genuine if you've waited to the last minute to do. And the other thing I would say is it is also quite presumptuous to assume that you will have either the time or the wherewithal to make a genuine confession on your last days, right, and on your deathbed. Right? I, I, I would not take that approach. And I wouldn't take that approach with anybody about almost anything. So, right, look, Louis, if, if you said to me, you know, Shamar, yeah, you, you know, you, you need to change your diet. You eat too much, you know, too much what? Hostess cupcakes, right? I, I'm, I'm making something up here. You eat too much sugar, too much sweets, you need to stop. If I said to you, listen, Louis, I've still got some teeth left. So let me make, you know, let me not stop until all my teeth are you know, full of cavities. Then I'll stop uh, on my deathbed. Or, you know, I'm still young. Let me enjoy myself. Let me eat as much sugar and sweets as I can. Uh, and then maybe, you know, as I'm laying in the hospital and cancer is eating away at my body, maybe then 
that maybe that's the right time to stop eating sweets. What would you say to me? <laughs> would you be like, oh, yeah, that's totally reasonable, totally logical? Well, I Take think your time. you're kind of making me realize another thing is that, you know, we we don't really know our fate, meaning like we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how we're going to die. I mean, you know, not everyone, not everyone gets the opportunity to, to come to believe in their deathbed after spending about 30 minutes speaking to one of the pastors that's working in the hospital. You know, some, some people, I mean, come on, we've, we've both lived for, for a little while. There are plenty of people who were young, they thought they had tomorrow, but then they got into an accident and they, they're no longer here. Right. And it's, it's, and I think the, the, the part that always kind of makes me a little hesitant, however, even with that, um, because when we, when we kind of talk about it that way, you know, we're like in a rush. We're like, you got to believe. I mean, you know, like there's there might not be a tomorrow. You got to believe. But what I also think is that um, oftentimes if people are not willing to talk about God, they are going to push that idea away from them, regardless yes. of what the consequences may be. And right. it's because they're emotionally unavailable to let God in. Right. Yes. And so I used to kind of have this little bit of a frustrating emotion towards some people who wouldn't believe in God. Yeah. But I think what I've come to realize is that, you know, it's ultimately not something that I can do. Uh, only thing that I can do is pray in patience. Right. Yeah. And, and hoping one day God will open their hearts. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, right, you hope that he will open their hearts and you hope that it will happen sooner rather than later. Because just like eating right and exercise, right, it is a good decision. It is the better decision, right? Should I eat healthy food or should I eat junk food? Clearly, eating healthy food is the better decision. Right. Maybe not the most delicious, but the most healthy. Right. Maybe not the most pleasurable, but the most fulfilling. Right. Healthy food doesn't always taste as good as candy. But when I'm done eating healthy food, I don't regret it and I don't feel bad. Exercise. Right. Should you exercise or should you not? If you can. Right. While you still have control of your faculties, it is a better decision to take good care of your body so that as you age, you have the best quality of life possible. We don't know what happens, so we can't make any guarantees. We can't say because you've exercised, you won't die young and things won't happen. But what we can say is that statistically, taking care of your body gives you a better quality of life. In the same way, We think that trusting God is not just a good spiritual decision, but it's also just a good decision. Walking with the wise creator of the universe and allowing him to transform your heart just makes sense. It is the absolute best thing you can do for yourself. 
Is it demanding in some ways? Absolutely. Will you have to make sacrifices and give things up? Totally. Will it be less delicious than a life without God? Yes. Will it be more fulfilling than a life without God? Yes. And so I don't just, it sounds like we're just making a spiritual case. Um, and, and we are, but we're also making a good moral, ethical, logical, intelligent case. The creator of the universe, right? The universe that did not create itself. You have never seen that. You've never seen something create itself out of nothing. Right? So the creator of this universe, as big as he is and as wise as he is, wants to have a relationship with me. So he sent his son to come in my form so that I could not miss him or misinterpret him to justify me as the word, but a, maybe a better way of saying it is to close the gap of alienation that is between us. Right? And his demand was small. So he's not like an invader, right? Total and complete surrender, no terms, you know, send all your money, send all your women. He didn't do that. He asks basically for one thing. Now, it is a big thing, but it's a small thing too. He didn't ask for your works first. What he asked for was your faith. Believe him. And you can sit around and think about God and come to a logical conclusion about why there is a God and whether you should come to that God. So he just asked, believe me, right? Sit around, think about me and believe me. I will have relationship with you now. And the kicker, when this life is over, I will give you a brand new body that is immortal and have a relationship with you for eternity. That is a fantastic deal under any circumstances. If an investor came to you who had good credit and a good track record and said, Louie, give me $1,000 and you will make a at least a 10%, but probably more like a 20 or 30% return every year in perpetuity, Right, you will continue to grow wealthy. This will last. You can pass this on to your kids. You will be, absolutely. I'll take that deal. What God offers us is better than an investment of that of that nature. It's just a good deal. What he asks in return is faith. Right? That's the case that Paul makes. It's a low bar, right? Unless you've got trust issues, but that's a different podcast, right? <laughs> But but putting trust issues aside, it's a low bar with a fantastic return. So I promised that I would read you Jesus's perspective on people making it in, even sometimes later in the game. So there's one more parable, and I know we're we're um, approaching an hour, so. I'll share this. I'll, I'll wait for your feedback, and then we can we can stop whenever you want. But Matthew, 
chapter 20. I'm going to start at verse 1. This is Jesus talking. So if you're old-fashioned King James, like, like King James kid like me, this is red letter. Right? For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Verse 5, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And I'm allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me. Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first last. Now, on one hand, you can look at that and say, the master of the house cheated him. I wouldn't make that case. I would make the case that he was actually quite fair. He gave everybody what he promised. But on the other hand, I think what you can say is, one, he's an honest broker. He does what he promises. I think the other thing you can say, though, is that this opens the door for people who didn't get it in the first century. You didn't get it when Jesus was around, right? You're getting it now, right? You went to Sunday school when you were a kid, but you walked away from church. You haven't been, you haven't had a relationship with God or the church in a very long time. But even now, you can come. I think the pivotal point to remember is that it says he went out at different hours and saw different people. And so the message is not that you should wait to the last minute, but that you should do this. This is also a biblical quote. In the day that you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. For some people, it was the very beginning of the day. For other people, it was the third hour. For others, the sixth, the ninth, and for some, the eleventh. Whatever day that is, 
right? Whatever day that you hear about this amazing investment or the benefits of eating right and exercising or the beauty of salvation, whatever day that is, let that day be the day that you give God your trusting faith and you make it into the kingdom. The only way there is to make it in by faith, not by works. So I wanted to land there. Wanted to answer, I think, all the questions. We, we kind of hit on that a little bit earlier. So I wanted to bring that around full circle. I think uh, one last thing that I wanted to share with everybody listening to this discussion is um, one thing that I have been kind of thinking about as you're explaining this is it's kind of like <laughs> uh, there's a there's a new song called Kind by Corey Asbury. Oh, yeah. One of my favorites, man. In the chorus line, he says, I've tried to run from Jesus. I've started holy war wars. I've tried the patient waiting and kicking down the doors. I've cursed his name in anger and with my fist raised to the sky. And in return, all he's ever been is kind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that is awesome. And if we have that faith where we believe the kindness and the goodness of God, I think, you know, what, what better ways for us to wait for that day to come? Yeah. 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 That, yeah. Right. He is kind. He's kind at the beginning of the day, the third, the ninth, and the 11th hour. He's kind when you resist. He's kind when you surrender. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Listen, um, I don't know if I said this the last time, but if you are watching this video and you are considering having a relationship with Christ, I want to encourage you to, to take that thought to its logical conclusion and to develop the relationship with God that he wants to develop with you. He is kind and good. And I'll take it further. If right, God invites us not just into the kingdom, but also into community. So find a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church home of people who will love you and speak the truth to you in love and allow them to help you to walk out your relationship with Christ, to learn what that means to be a Christian. But if you live in Lexington and you haven't been to TBC, you should probably come check this out. 1675, Straighter Drive, Lexington, Kentucky, 40508. Me and my friends would love to see you. And we'll be kind. If they're not, you tell me, but we'll be kind.